This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 122, the 11th part of the Ultra Running Stranger Things series. This episode will continue to share the strange stories about ultra runners of the 1800s that had trouble with the law because of drunkenness, alleged abuse of minors, and racing on Sundays. <laughs> Guess what? I've authored and published a book on ultra running history, now available on Amazon, entitled Frank Hart, the First Black Ultra Running Star. In 1879, Hart broke the ultra running color barrier and then broke the world's six-day record with 565 miles, fighting racism with his feet and fists. I've uncovered fascinating details about his running career and life. He reached 100 miles in about 80 races. I'm sure you're going to like this book. Find it on Amazon. Search for Frank Hart, that's H-A-R-T, Frank Hart Davy Crockett, and you should pull it up. Ultra runners or pedestrians of the late 1800s were a unique breed of determined and aggressive individuals who were in the sport primarily to try to cash in on huge prize money and get their names in the newspapers as world champions. They would gladly endure the torture of running hundreds of miles in a week for a perceived easy way to earn life-changing money. Such opportunities obviously attracted individuals that weren't necessarily the most outstanding citizens and had run-ins with the law. But the law and others at times wanted to bring down the sport and the athletes, and thus confrontations occurred. In 1885, two female pedestrians, Emma Frazier and Elizabeth Carr, were arrested in Philadelphia at a saloon on Walnut Street, along with 25 spectators and the race manager, James B. Jameson, for disorderly conduct. A policeman had visited the event and went to obtain an arrest warrant. A raid was conducted, the race was stopped, and arrests were made. It was discovered that Carr was a minor. It was reported... The excitement over the match was at its height, some 30 persons being assembled in the bar and showroom. The raid had been carefully kept secret and was completely successful. Everybody in the house was taken out of it and marched in a melancholy procession to the central station where they were locked up to await a hearing the next morning. Jameson, who also had a retail store, had previous run-ins with the law and believed the raid was, quote, a piece of spite work on the part of a neighbor with whom he was competing in business. At the hearing, it was testified that the place was noisy and disorderly. Mr. J. L. Grotenthaler, the owner of the competing business, said the place was interfering with his business and he was losing his lady customers. Officer Watson said that he visited the place because of complaints that young girls were enticed into it. Jameson was held for $1,000 to answer the charge of keeping a disorderly house, and the other prisoners were released. Mark All of England was an interesting pedestrian character. 
He claimed to be one of the mega-mile around-the-world walkers of the time, and would claim to be the champion walker of the world. Many stories are told about these journey walkers in episodes 38 to 45. Most of these professional walkers were taking advantage of the naive Americans, but Mark All was a rare elderly walker who was entertaining the British. All was born in Greenwich, England in 1828, where he learned an electric engineering career. For years, he was employed by a firm of engineers. But during a great strike of 1897 and 98, he lost his employment. Since he was 72 years old, or claimed to be, he made up his mind to start a walking tour and find employment wherever he could to prove that a man isn't used up in old age. All claimed that he started a long walk on August 6, 1900, and walked 30,000 miles before his efforts were noticed by the sports newspapers of that era in 1904. He said that three of the papers raised a 500-pound prize for him if he could continue and reach 60,000 miles in a total of seven years. He was described as... A ruddy-faced, white-haired man carrying a black bag containing small engineering tools, a walking stick, and having a picture of his dead British bulldog suspended from a button on his waistcoat. By 1906, he claimed that he had traveled through the British Isles and many European countries. Like most of the -the around-the-world walkers of the time, the majority who were frauds, He alleged that the conditions for his long walk required that he could not solicit donations, but could receive them if offered. When the opportunity presents itself, he does a day's work. He was stabbed while in Spain, and on two other occasions he had been stoned and robbed. But the proudest moment of his life was undoubtedly when King Edward spoke to him on the road near Newmarket, gave him a couple of sovereigns, and called him a brave old veteran. He claimed that his usual pace covered 50 miles in 10 hours, 250 miles per week, and that he never walked on Sundays. A good pair of army boots lasted him two months. He said at age 77, My life on the road has been one of many vicissitudes, with few to recognize me or give me a helping hand. Still, I am alive. I am without a rival or companion on the road, having beaten all previous records at my age. I will never despair, but struggle on to the end." During 1905 to 1907, All became famous across England. He would always visit newspaper offices and try to get his story in the local papers. He said that he allowed himself a little beer when off-duty and enjoyed a pipe before his daily exercise. In 1907, at the age of 80, he was arrested for drunkenness in Ashburn, England. The judge was shocked to see such a famous man in his court. The night before, he had fallen, cut his chin, and was arrested. The judge did not want to deal severely with the famous old man, so he let him off with a fine. Just a year later, all claimed that he was walking 100,000 miles in eight and a half years, which would have required him to walk 40,000 miles in just a year and a half in his 80s. His prize amount curiously jumped to 2,000 pounds and then to an outrageous 3,000 pounds. He then boosted his mileage amount to 200,000 miles. Obviously, it was all a farce, but no one seemed to want to confront the old man. 
His tales to reporters became more and more outlandish. Mr. All has suffered as many persecutions as St. Paul, been flung into prison, attacked with knives, shot at, stoned, baited with dogs, and had many adventures and extraordinary escapes. Starting in 1909, authorities finally recognized he was a homeless traveling tramp, and he was committed or admitted voluntarily over and over again in workhouses. By 1900, economic expansion had made Britain the richest nation on the planet, and yet almost one-third of the country's urban population lived in poverty. To control the number of poor becoming dependent on what would be called welfare benefits today, paupers had to pass what was known as the workhouse test. In order to qualify for help, they had to be prepared to work 10 hours a day, six days a week, on mind-numbing, tedious labor like breaking rocks or picking apart old rope. Inmates were treated like prisoners, but the workhouse wasn't a prison. The door was always open and people were free to leave if they wanted. But for one in every 10 who came in, the only way out was in a coffin. All would state to reporters that there were important conditions for his walk. That he shall not enter a workhouse or fall into the hands of police. <laughs> well, records show he was committed to workhouses continually and got in trouble with the police. He would get out of a workhouse and go visit local newspaper offices, claiming that his walk was continuing with a trip even to America, where he never went to. Reports never saw him walking. He was only seen in newspaper offices. Mark All died on March 31, 1925, a pauper in Shirley Warren Poor Law Infirmary, Southampton, at the age of 96. Actually, there was no true evidence of his age. People said he looked 20 years younger than he claimed. No one at the infirmary knew who he was until they went through the papers left behind. He claimed impossibly in 25 years he had walked 356,000 miles. One has never quite able to come to the conclusion whether he was a hoaxer. As it turns out, Mark All was one of the many around the world walking frauds who would turn up in towns telling stories about meeting kings and sharing unbelievable survival stories. These tales were great for entertaining news stories, he and others like him just looked for attention and free room and board. As all was nearing death, he stated that he hoped that in the afterlife he may travel on a beautiful highway where there will be no blooming motor cars to choke an old fellow with dust. In 1881, George Pegg, age 51, a shoemaker from Derby, England, a well-known pedestrian who had recently walked 102 miles in 25 hours and accomplished 382 miles in a six-day match, was charged with violent assault on a butcher, Henry Thorpe. On Monday, Peg entered the old Neptune Inn and offered to walk against anybody in the town of Burton for 20 pounds. He then offered some money to Thorpe, telling him to cover the bet. But when he declined pushed it away, and the money fell on the floor. 
Peg gave him a blow on the head with a pewter pot, injuring him severely and saying he would knock his brains out. The tankard hit Thorpe's head, cut the scalp, and caused a wound that had to be dressed at the infirmary. Peg was sentenced to three months in prison with hard labor. He had been convicted in other crimes before, including stealing a hair from his neighbor. He had been called a, quote, foolish drunken freak. In 1881, in New York City, Thomas Smith Sr. was arrested for cruelty to children. At the American Institute building, he forced his 15-year-old son, Thomas Smith Jr., to participate in a walking match. Young Smith, after having walked 98 miles under the use of stimulants and influences, the boy fell insensible on the track, completely broken down. The father made him continue, supporting him as he tottered around the track. But when that didn't work, he carried his son to his tent, and then he was sent home in a carriage in a, quote, dangerous condition. At the trial, the boy denied that he had been forced to compete, but Smith pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to 10 days in prison and given a $100 fine. In 1893, May Robinson, age 16, also known as Happy Jarbull, was determined to follow her mother into a career of being a professional pedestrian. Her stepfather forbade her from participating and placed her in a Columbus, Ohio convent. She escaped and walked to Cincinnati where she appeared in a race of female pedestrians. From there, she went to Chicago and New York, where she was chased out of walking matches three times by Humane Society of Officers because her childlike appearance was obvious. Finally, she was arrested in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania by the Anti-Cruelty Society and placed in a foster home. When arrested, she boasted, I took second prize money in a race in Chicago last winter. In 1881, Michael S. Tinnen a shoemaker from Staten Island, New York, competed in the third O'Leary Belt six-day race in Madison Square Garden. He left the track after reaching 85 miles in the first 24 hours. His friends had pressured him into entering the race, and he went home with a feeling of disgust for failing. He took it out on his wife, Alice, and beat her, giving her black eyes and tearing out much of her hair. It was shown that Mr. Tinnen was of an irritable temper, especially at times when he was in training, and that it was customary for him to throw dishes around the house, break glasses, and raise the wind generally. He promised to reform before leaving the court, and marched down Butler Street followed by two of his misguided backers in his recent contest. He was fined $20, which was paid by his employer. In 1904, Tony Todd his real name being Hugh Sloan, age 22, of Bolton, England, was attempting to walk 2,000 miles in 1,000 hours at the Coach and Horses Ground, Dronefield, England. An 18-year-old girl, Emily Bennett, visited his tent during his attempt. Sloan's wife had been lodging with the girl's parents and went off to wash his dirty clothes. Sloan, it was alleged, after three other men had left the tent, fastened the door by placing a bar of iron across it, and then committed the offense. Afterwards, he gave her a shilling, which she at first refused. Emily cried long and often the following day, and let Sloan's wife know what happened. 
Sloan was confronted but denied the allegation, became violent and struck and knocked down his wife. The police went to the venue and arrested him. At his trial, Sloan testified that he had never been alone with the girl and claimed the payment given was for washing his clothes. He believed the whole thing was a scheme involving her parents to get him to fail in his walking attempt. The court believed him and dismissed the charges. Sloan reattempted his 2,000 miles in 1,000 hours several months later and succeeded, claiming a world record. Many cities had laws against holding events on Sundays. In 1879, as six-day races were reaching their height in New York City, the Brooklyn Chief of Police, Patrick Campbell, received complaints about walking matches being held on Sundays at Mozart Garden. The police chief went to see Mayor James Howell, believing that there was a law on the books against the practice, and he wondered about the permit that the mayor had issued for the race. The mayor assured the chief that he had not thought about the Sunday problem. He believed that that men should go to church, and that the day should be observed according to Christian custom. If such a place as Mozart Garden were kept open on Sunday by virtue of his permission, he wished to revoke the permit. Thus, in Brooklyn, the mayor started to disallow races on Sundays. They found an obscure law on the books. There was no statue in the state on the subject except one, which imposes a fine on a man if he is out walking anywhere on Sunday, unless it is in a pursuit of charity, going after medicine or the doctor, or on his way to church, if the church be within a distance of 20 miles. <laughs> they also found an ordinance against rope dancing, exhibition of animals, puppet shows, or other common shows without a permit signed by the mayor. It was clear that they needed to pass a specific law against pedestrianism on Sundays, and they intended to pursue it. The mayor pulled the permit of the current female walking match at Mozart Garden. The justification was, These physical shows on Sundays have become a nuisance to Brooklyn, that residents in the neighborhood are annoyed by them, and that adjacent property is depreciated, that the whole thing is foreign to the tradition of the habits of Brooklyn, that crowds of idle and loud-tongued loiterers are gathered inside and outside the building by them, to the great annoyance of quiet and orderly families who pass on their way to and from church. Brooklyn took a hard stance and published that week. Sunday pedestrian in a public hall to which the public is admitted will not in the future be tolerated in Brooklyn. The morals of the community and peacefulness of the city on Sunday are of more importance than any sacrifice of calves on the part of any number of pedestrians. Later that same year, six women were competing in a six-day match at Stapleton, Staten Island, New York. Two were arrested at night for violation of the Sunday law. The others escaped. Saved or damned? Clergymen who were opposed to the evils of pedestrianism wished for ways to disrupt the races but usually just preached hell and damnation the Sunday following an event in their churches, hoping to stir up opposition. As to whose side you are really on, the Lord's? The devils! I'm a sinner! 
1884, a prominent clergyman came into Madison Square Garden during a race on a free ticket and sat down with the reporters. He watched the weary men for an hour in thoughtful contemplation, and before he went away, penciled the following lines from a well-known hymn on the pine writing table. Happy the man who never consents by ill advice to walk. Reverend W. Steele of New York used 1 Timothy 4, 8 as his sermon text. For bodily exercise profiteth little. He claimed that some exercise was good, but not walking day and night for five or six days together, which he referred to as abuse. He used as evidence that walkers were even losing some toenails during their matches. <laughs> it was appalled at the bar in Madison Square Garden that was 65 feet long with 21 barkeepers giving out 25,000 drinks during the race, quote, poisoning the people. But worst of all was the gambling, where over a million dollars was changing hands during a match. A man who takes money he does not earn will steal. I look at a gambler as a thief. Reverend Edward Eagleston, a Methodist minister and historian, preached, When you put men on a race course for six mortal days and nights together, it has some elements like the old Roman gladiator shows. It is liable to result in destruction of life and bring an abridgment for life. Reverend Dr. John Philip Newman, a Methodist Episcopal minister, added, The pains of a whole life were endured in a week, and the happiness of life was sacrificed in the same brief time. Is happiness so cheap? Others will be tempted to try and will suffer in turn. We can applaud the fireman and soldier who suffer in the discharge of their duties, but he who inflicts voluntary suffering upon himself defrauds society. Well, it was quite an era. If you are racing in an ultra today, and the police show up, just act natural, and never do it on Sunday. Stay tuned for more ultra-running Stranger Things. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>